Uh, if you have a Bible with you and want to grab that, we'll be in Acts chapter 8 today. Acts chapter 8, that's the fifth book of the New Testament uh, in the later part of the Bible. For those of you that are new or newer to the scriptures, I want to welcome those of you online and invite you to grab your Bible as well as we continue through a teaching series where we are talking about where we believe God is calling our church to be over the next decade. You know, I was watching this video even in preparation for this week, and as they put it together, uh, I was thinking deeply about kids' small groups here at Calvary. And one of the things we always need to recognize when it comes to church is that nothing that happens at church is inevitable. Like, nothing has to happen. What happens is someone had the idea. They had the idea that we should have small groups for kids and we should gather them on Wednesday nights at a particular time in a particular place. And then through the hard work of our staff and our volunteers, that idea gets put into practice. But it always begins with a thought. It always begins with an idea. In this case, the idea was we should have small groups for kids here at Calvary. And that idea ultimately becomes reality. It reminds me of a phrase that philosopher and theologian Dallas Willard said. He said this, he said, there is no denying, no avoiding the fact that we live at the mercy of our ideas. We live at the mercy of our ideas. In other words, the things that come into our mind, the ideas we have about life, about ministry, about family or finances or technology, whatever ideas you have in this world, you end up living at the mercy of those ideas. It's like we have ideas and then ideas begin to have us. They capture our heart and they capture our mind. And sometimes we don't even realize the ideas we've accumulated throughout our lives. Like this morning, I want to point out to you that there are all kinds of phrases, ideas, sentences that you have memorized through the course of your life. And you don't even recognize how many sentences, ideas, or, 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 or thoughts have come into your mind and you've captured to memory. And so in order to prove that to you this morning, we're going to play a little game. Now, Calvary, we don't usually do games during the sermon, so I want you to roll with me here. I'm going to say a sentence, and I'm going to leave out the last word of the sentence, and if you know how the sentence ends, you just shout it out, okay? I know that's not usually our style, but we're going to do this together, all right? I'm going to say the sentence. If you know the last word of the sentence, you shout it out. We'll start with an easy one. The grass is always greener on the other side. <laughs> we did it. Good job, Calvary. Pat yourself on the back. All right, number two, don't put all your eggs in one very good, very good. Actions speak louder than? Very, very good. Don't judge a book by its? Nice, nice. We're doing very well this morning. Listen, let's see if we can get this one. There's no use crying over spilled. Ah, very, very good. An apple a day keeps the doctor. And then finally, the early bird gets the? But my sleep-in friends like to remind me that it's the second mouse that gets the cheese, right? <laughs> Some of you will get that in a second. All right, but here's the point. You have memorized all of these. For some of you, it was so easy. This was too simple. You've got these to memory. And yet at no point during your life did you sit down over the course of three months and memorize all of these phrases, right? Just over the course of time, what happened is you were taught these by your mom or by your grandma, and they started to become part of you. And it's not just that you've memorized the phrase. It's that for most of us, we live by these phrases as if they're true, so we don't put all our eggs in one basket. We want to diversify our opportunities and our finances. We don't want to judge a book by its cover. We want to actually understand the situation more than just the headline or how it appears. And here's what I want to observe when it comes to these little phrases that you and I have memorized over the course of our life. The little phrases we learn shape how we live. Little phrases we learn, little sentences, 
Little ideas that get into our mind actually shape and mold how we live. Again, there's no denying the fact or no avoiding the fact that we live at the mercy of our ideas. John Piper puts it this way. He says, books don't change people. Paragraphs do. Sometimes even sentences. It's these little sentences, these little phrases that you and I have learned over the course of our life that shape the way we think, shape the way we live, and even shape the way we follow Jesus. And I say all of this to say, that as we head toward 2030, there are six ideas, six phrases, six little sentences that I want you to know. I want you to believe our leadership here wants us to buy into and internalize so that we can be the type of people who are changed by them as we follow after Jesus. Just like we've memorized all of those sentences I just walked through, here are six sentences for everyone in our church to memorize internalize and be shaped by. Let me show them to you all at once. Number one, it's all about Jesus. Number two, God's people delight in God's word. Number three, life change happens in relationship. Number four, found people find people. Number five is saved people serve people. And finally, the grateful people are giving people. Here are six sentences you're going to hear over and over and over again in the next decade. Six sentences that if you would believe them and internalize them and consider them and hold them deep in your heart, just like all of these other phrases, it will change the way you follow Jesus. It will change the way you experience God's presence in this world. And if collectively we all do this together, it will change the type of place that Calvary Community Church is. These are our core values, our core behaviors, six ideas, Six sentences, six phrases that we're inviting you to know, understand, and internalize in the decade to come. This week, I'm going to cover three of those phrases, and next week, we'll cover the other three of those phrases, and we'll consider deeply what God has for us in each and every one of these phrases. And this morning, we'll be looking at that through the passage in Acts chapter 8. So again, if you have your Bible, we'll start in verse 26. It'll be on the screen as well. Here's how the story begins. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, now let's pause for those of you who don't know the story. The early church is growing and expanding. The ministry is happening in Jerusalem. And there's signs and wonders and people are being led to Jesus. And one of those early followers of Jesus who has a fruitful ministry in the city of Jerusalem is named Philip. And we see Philip here. God is moving through Philip. Signs and wonders are happening through Philip. People are coming to Jesus through Philip. Philip is one of the rock stars, the superstars of the early church who God is using to do incredible things. And here's what 26 says. It says, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south on the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now I wanna point something out that's easy to miss here in the text. The angel of the Lord shows up and speaks to Philip like God has something to say to Philip and he does not tell him. It might be easier for you to read this and think he tells Philip, now go to Gaza, go to this city. But I want to point out it actually doesn't tell him to go to Gaza. It says go south to the road, the desert road, the one that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. In other words, the angel of the Lord shows up to Philip and tells him to start walking down this road, this road that goes through the middle of the desert. And he doesn't actually tell him the final destination. He doesn't actually tell Philip where this road is going to lead him or what the purpose of him going down this road is. And I share this this morning and point this out to remind us as a people that walking by faith often means taking the first step without knowing the final destination. That's what it means for us to walk by faith. 
that we're taking this first step of faith without knowing where it ultimately leads us. To be a follower of Jesus is not to know what's gonna happen a year down the road or 10 years down the road. It's not to be certain of anything in the future other than the fact that God is going to be there and he is going to show himself to be faithful. What happens here with Philip is that Philip is told to walk down this road and he's not even sure where he's going. He's not even sure where it leads. He's not even told by God what the point of him walking down the road is. And yet I want you to see these four words in the beginning of verse 27. They're simple and yet they're beautiful. It says this, so he started out. He started out. I love this about Philip. The angel of the Lord shows up and God tells him to do something. And Philip hears what he's supposed to do. And you know what most of us would do? Most of us would sit and be like, God, could you explain a little more of where this is heading? Would you help me understand a little of the purpose? Because I've got a fruitful ministry going on here in Jerusalem and I don't want to unplug myself from that. A lot of people would ask God questions. A lot of people would get their mentor and say like, God told me this, so what should I do? A lot of people would look for a book or a podcast on this, but that's not what Philip does. Philip hears what God says and then it says, so he started out. He just left. He just did exactly what God said. And here's what I want you to know. That what Philip demonstrates for us is what we see all throughout the scriptures. It's what we see from people who are growing in Jesus. It's what I call the two-step formula for spiritual growth. This is going to sound incredibly sophisticated and mind-blowing to you, but let me give you the two-step formula for spiritual growth this morning. You can write this down. Number one, you listen to God. Number two, you do what he says. That's it. That's all. It is mind-blowingly simple. Here's what we do to grow in faith. Just like Philip, we listen to what God has to do and then we put it into practice. We listen to God and we do what he says. And while that might not sound that interesting or mind-blowing or fresh to you, isn't remarkable how often this seems difficult to us. Like we hear the spirit of God speak, we hear God move, we hear he has something to say, and yet we don't actually wanna do it. And how do we hear God speak? We hear him speak through his word. We hear him speak through prayer, through his spirit. We hear him speak through his people. We listen to God and then we do what he says. And this becomes incredibly difficult for so many of us. And the reason it is difficult to listen to God and do what he says is because of this simple truth that insight is always easier than obedience. Insight is always easier. It is always easier to listen to a sermon and be like, that sermon was so good. Oh man, that rocked me. That moved me to tears. That's the easy part. It is easy to read a book and say, wow, this book gave me some new insights some things I had never thought of. It was so powerful. It's easy to hear a podcast or see a YouTube video or see a post on social media that moves you deeply. See, insight is the easy part. Insight is child's play. Maturity comes through obedience. Maturity comes from putting that into practice and taking action. So here's what I need us to know this morning that Philip demonstrates for us, that insight doesn't cause spiritual growth. Obedience does. Obedience does. When we listen to God and do what he says, that's when we actually grow in Jesus. Oswald Chambers puts it this way. He says, the golden rule to follow, to obtain spiritual understanding, is not one of intellectual pursuit, but one of obedience. If a person wishes scientific knowledge, then intellectual curiosity must be his guide. But if he desires knowledge and insight into the teachings of Jesus Christ, he can only obtain it through obedience. In other words, it's obedience, it's action, it's listening to God and then actually doing what he says that causes us to grow spiritually. 
It's not just filling our mind with knowledge or understanding more things or having more insight about the human condition. What changes us, what makes us more like Jesus, what grows us spiritually is us doing what God said to do. Which means the question we should ask after every single church service you come to, after every single small group you attend, after every time you read your Bible or listen to a sermon on a podcast, the question you should ask is not the question of, did I enjoy it or not? How did Pastor Brian or Pastor Sean do this morning? Did I like the worship songs this morning? Did I enjoy the service? Those are all fine questions. But the real question we should ask is this one. What next step of obedience is God calling me to take today? That's the question we should each be asking when we leave this place and get into our cars and drive home this afternoon. What next step of obedience is God calling me to take today? That's the question for all of us. Not one of assessment or evaluation or how much did I like it, but what is God calling me to obey? Philip hears, go down the road, the desert road, the one that leads to Gaza. So Philip sets out in verse 27, it says, so he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasuries of the Candake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. So Philip is going down this road that God has sent him down and there's confetti falling from the ceiling. <laughs> Did you all see that too, just me? Okay, <laughs> if it was just me, I'll go see a doctor. Um, wow, there's more. Okay, focus, focus, Brian. All right, <laughs> Lord help us. All right, so you got Philip. He's going down this road and he's going down this road toward Gaza, right? He doesn't know why he's going and then he runs into someone. It says he met an Ethiopian eunuch. And we don't get this Ethiopian eunuch's name, but this is going to be a powerful story of transformation. And then it goes on to say this, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Now I love this part of the story because the Ethiopian eunuch had traveled all the way to Jerusalem to worship. He had gone to a worship service. He had been worshiping the Lord. And then on his way home in his chariot, like the ancient version of our cars, he's reading the book of Isaiah. It would be like if you came to church today and sat under the teaching of the word of God. And then on the drive home, you flick the keys to your spouse. You're like, you drive. I'm reading the word today. I just can't get enough of this. So see, that's what's happening here with the Ethiopian eunuch. He's already gone to worship and yet he cannot get enough of the word of God. And it's that thought of us not being able to get enough of the word of God. Like we just want more and more that I want us to think about this morning. It's like this. So when I was in college, um, I, I drove down to a friend of mine who lived in Orange County um, and, and the friend and I got together for dinner. It had been a while since we talked and so we got together at this taco place. Now, um, I don't remember what, where the taco place was. This is a great tragedy in my life. Uh, I don't remember where it is. I don't even know if it's still in existence. I just remember eating those tacos and thinking to myself in the new creation upon the resurrection, these tacos are going to be here, right? They were that good. Like these tacos were incredible. I'm trying to listen to my friend, but I'm just thinking about the tacos. And that's like all my heart is wrapped around. And then we end dinner and we head over to his house and we're just hanging out for a few hours, just catching up on life and ministry and what God is doing in our lives. It was just this beautiful time. And then uh, it's getting late at night. I got to drive all the way back to LA. And so I say goodbye to him and I get on the car and I start to drive down the road. And on my way back home, I see the taco shop. Now it's late at night and I need to get home and I am not even the least bit hungry, 
But these tacos were so good, like I just couldn't get enough of them, that what did I do? Did I drive past that? No, I did not. I took a left, I pulled into the taco shop, and I got myself a second helping. Why? Because I couldn't get enough of the tacos. I didn't matter if I was tired. It didn't matter if I was hungry or not. I just wanted more of the tacos. And I think about those tacos, and I go, that's how I want to treat the word of God. I want to be that kind of guy who says, I just can't get enough of it. I can't get enough of what God has to say. I just want more of what God has to say. It doesn't matter if I'm tired. It doesn't matter if I have the time. I just want to make sure I get more of what God has to say in my life. That's the kind of heart and posture I want to have toward the word of God. Uh, The psalmist in 119 says it this way. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Do you see that heart and that spirit? It's not, yeah, we should read our Bibles more. Yeah, we should make sure that we're opening the Bible at least once a day. It's this, I want more of it, and I'll do anything to get it. That's the kind of posture this Ethiopian eunuch has toward the scriptures. And that's what we ought to have as well. So this brings us to that first sentence, this first idea, this first thing, this idea, this thing we want to internalize inside of us over the next decade. And that's this, that we believe that God's people delight in God's word. As our leadership discussed this, this here's what we see. The vision is a church that is filled with disciples who both know and love the word of God. This is what we desire for our church, that we would be a people who know the word of God deeply, that understand what the scriptures say, that have a rock solid knowledge of what the Bible has to say, and at the same time, have this hunger and delight and joy and love for the word where it speaks to us as if we're hearing from our father because we are. It is a knowledge and a delight in God's word. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, you know that I I taught on elevating our love for God's word. Then a major part of our vision is that we would deliberately elevate our love for God's word. And so you're thinking might be, well, Brian, we kind of already covered the Bible thing, right? Like we all get it. We're supposed to read the Bible. Like, isn't this overkill? Why are we going back to the Bible again? And the reason we're going back and inserting it, not only as this major part of our vision, but as one of these six behaviors is this. That that, that we believe Bible reading is not just one of the things we do as Christians. It's not just one of the things we're supposed to be about as followers of Jesus. When it comes to all the habits and all of the disciplines and all the activities as Christians, we believe that we would describe Bible reading as this, um, that the habit researchers call this thing a keystone habit. So let me talk to you about keystone habits for a second. Charles Duhigg in his book, The Power of Habits, writes this. He writes that keystone habits are small changes or habits that people introduce into their routine that unintentionally carry over into other aspects of their life. So, So he gives some examples like this. It's the individual who every single morning decides to make a habit of making their bed. Now, some of you make your bed every morning. If you were to ask my wife, she would firmly tell you that I am not one of those people, Okay. But the people who make their bed every morning, Duhigg points out, are the type of people where they do that one habit, and then through the rest of the day, they just tend to be a little more tidy. They tend to be a little more clean because of that one keystone habit that overflows into other habits. He talks about people who make a budget at the beginning of their month. And because they put together this budget, because they've actually put together a plan, they tend to be more on track financially than people who don't. He talks about people who look at their calendar on Sunday night or Monday morning as they're approaching the week. And because they've done this review, because they have this habit of making sure their mind is around their calendar, they stay disciplined. For for me, I've noticed in my life, a keystone habit is working out early in the morning. When I get a workout in early in the morning, I tend to eat healthier. 
I tend to drink more water throughout the day. I tend to sit up straighter. It's like that one little habit that overflows into health through the rest of my day. And I point this out to you because this idea of keystone habits applies to the scriptures. Here's what we believe. The Bible reading is a keystone habit for the follower of Jesus. That when you read the Bible, when you read the scriptures and know the scriptures and love the scriptures and memorize the scriptures, when you are listening to what God has to say, it spills out into every other area of your discipleship. But like we've observed that the people who have the most robust prayer lives are the ones who know deeply what God had to say first. We've observed that the people who give and serve with a reckless kind of sacrificial abandon are the people who know the word of God deeply. We've observed that the people who can have peace and joy in the midst of life's trials are the people who know and love the word of God. Bible reading is a keystone habit. It is that one little domino that will knock all the other dominoes over when we read it. And why is this true? This isn't just true from social psychology. It isn't just true from our observation. Theologically and biblically, here's what I want to observe. That every great move in the Bible begins with him speaking. Every great move of God in the Bible begins with him speaking, with something he has to say. If you know the creation story, you know it begins with, and God spoke and said, let there be light, and creation comes into account. You know that all throughout the Old Testament, whether it's Moses or Elijah or Noah or Jonah, it says the word of the Lord came to this individual. It begins with God speaking. And if you know the gospels, you know the gospel of John begins with the word becoming flesh. That God's spoken word and the person of Jesus becomes flesh and ultimately brings salvation to humanity. Bible reading, listening to what God has to say is a keystone habit for us. And if we are a people who delight in God's word, I'm entirely confident that all the other spiritual disciplines and habits and behaviors will flow out of that in our lives. We see a church filled with people who delight in God's word. It goes on this way in verse 29. It says, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So we invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. So they're walking around the road and, and, and Philip sees this Ethiopian eunuch, asks like, do you have any idea what you're reading? And the guy's like, no clue. I have no idea what's going on in the scriptures, which would be a relief to some of you. If you've ever been reading the Bible, you're like, I have no idea what's going on here. You're not alone. That makes you normal. And you know what's so beautiful about this? The Ethiopian eunuch doesn't go, but I'll try to figure it out on my own because if I ask for help, that makes me look weak and stupid. He doesn't say that. He says, how can I do that? And so then he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. And I don't want to spoil the ending, but I guess I'm going to, for those of you who don't know the story, like this man's going to come to Jesus. He's going to get baptized by the end of the story. And it all happens because he invited someone else into his life. He invited someone else to come sit with him. One person comes and sit with him, and it changes his entire life. Which brings us to our second sentence, idea, core value, and behavior for Calvary. And it's this, that we believe life change happens in relationship. We believe life change happens in relationship. As our leadership looks toward the future, here's what we see. We see a church filled with disciples who are relentless in their pursuit of God-honoring, life-changing relationships with other believers. This is what we see. This is what we believe. 
We believe that life change happens in our relationship with God, in our relationship with one another, that as we gather together as a people in large groups and small groups and ministry teams and coffees and dinners and, and, and groups at our houses, as that happens, life change happens in the context of relationship. And why do we believe this biblically? We believe it because God uses his people to accomplish his purposes. And this is so important for us to get. Because for so many Christians, even myself at times, I tend to think that God's plan A, if God was really powerful, I would ask him for help on something and he would just reach down from heaven and like zap me and make me all better. But then what I see throughout the scriptures is that what God does is he stirs in the hearts of his people to help and serve and change the world. Uh, Like I want you to know that God using people is not some kind of plan B. It's not some kind of afterthought. It's not God going, well, I'm out of miracles for today, so I'll just send someone else to help you. In fact, I want to show that to you here in the scripture. You may have missed this. It says in verse 29, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Got to imagine this Ethiopian eunuch 20 years later being like, wow, I really did not understand the scriptures. And I guess God could have come from heaven and just helped me understand himself. But, you know, he didn't really have the time today. So I guess he sent Philip and, and I guess that's the thing. But here's what it is. Verse 29 says, the spirit told Philip to go to him. Like in other words, it's not that God didn't show up, it's that he did and he did it through Philip. This is the beautiful thing about God in the scriptures. Like God moves through the hearts of his people to show up and do supernatural things in the life of his people. And I think for all of us to recognize that life change happens in relationship is to recognize that God is on the move every time we are talking to another believer. That in some mysterious and sometimes unknown kind of way, God is moving in the midst of it. Can I just speak to a few of you in the situations you're in and the things you're dealing with in this life? It's so tempting when we're going through the hardest things of life to think, God just needs to solve this thing between me and him. When so often what God wants to do is to solve this through his people. Like, let me give you a few examples. Number one, I want you to know that God heals us from depression in relationship. Like when we're depressed and we just feel so heavy by the things of this life, what we often want is just to cry out to God and he'll fix it in a moment. But the way God tends to move is through relationship with counselors or therapists or small groups or support people, people in our lives who help. God heals us from depression in relationship. Listen, God frees us from addiction in relationship. I want you to know that if, you're, if something's got its claws in you, if you're stuck right now in some habit or sin or pattern or behavior, that there is no freedom outside of relationship. If you think I'm just gonna be all by myself, I'm never gonna tell anyone, I'm gonna keep my secret, and I'm just gonna overcome this on my own, that rarely, if ever, works. God changes us. God frees us through relationship. I want you to know that God gives us purpose and clarity in relationship. So often when we're at a crossroads of our life, we think we just need to call out to God and God will just show up out of nowhere or he'll fly a banner in the air and give us an answer for that. And often what God does is he asks us to step into a relationship with wise counselors who are willing to tell us true things. If you're in a season or a spot in your life where you're not sure which direction to go next, I want to encourage you to get into relationship with people who will tell you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. Listen, next, God gives us relief from exhaustion in relationship. If you're exhausted and overwhelmed by the pace or the pressure of life right now, I want you to know that freedom and help from that and relief from that doesn't come from you isolating from the world and pushing everyone away, but rather from you stepping into relationship with other people who God will use to refresh you. Lesson, God gives help for our marriage in relationship. 
Marriage is one of the most beautiful things in our lives, and yet it can be one of the most difficult things to navigate. For some of you, this weekend has been a difficult time for your marriage. This last week has been a difficult time for your marriage. For others of you, you're struggling, but you're not letting anyone know. If anyone asks, you say everything's fine, but you're struggling, and inside your home, you too know it, and yet you're not asking for help. I want you to know help comes when you reach out, when you seek help. God changes us, helps us, blesses our marriages in relationship. Listen, God gives us strength for parenting in relationship. If marriage is hard, parenting is harder, right? Like it is difficult and at times we don't know what to do. We don't know how to do it. We don't feel like we have the strength to raise our kids. And yet that comes through us inviting other people into our lives to build us up and encourage us. And then finally, God gives us wisdom for our finances in in relationship. Like if you are struggling financially, you just feel like life is a mess, debt is overwhelming, or you're just out of control, you need to bring other people into your lives. Like the point of all of this is that God changes us through relationship and it's not a natural thing, it's a supernatural thing. Like I put it this way, so uh, just over uh, almost 10 years ago, my wife and I got married and that summer, June of 2013, we stepped into a small group and that small group meets every single Wednesday night. We've been meeting, like I said, for almost 10 years now. And here's what I want you to know about that small group. There's never been a time where we were meeting as a small group and like fire fell from heaven. There's never been a time where we were in the room going like, what's happening here? And if that happens, praise the Lord, because I believe God can move in that kind of way. But here's what I want you to know for certain, that the couples in that small group have changed my life. They've changed my marriage. I want you to know that in the process of every single Wednesday, sitting in a living room, opening the word of God and praying together, God has supernaturally changed my family, my ministry, my life, my marriage. Why? because life change happens in relationship. It's not always a spectacular thing, but it is God moving in powerful and meaningful ways through other people. So here's what I want us to consider. I want us to consider this truth that when we're stuck, when we're in need, when something's wrong in our life, we often ask, what do I need to do? When the first question should be, who do I need to talk to? Who do I need to get with? Who do I need to bring out to lunch or go to coffee with? Who do I need to invite over to my home to speak into my life or my marriage or my finances? Who do I need to speak to? Because life change happens in relationship. In verse 32, it says this. It said, this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. So so again, Philip jumps up into the chariot and begins to explain the passage. And, And then we're told here what passage was being read. Here's what it says. It says, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, please tell me, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? It's like the ultimate slow pitch softball over the plate for him to hit out of the park, right? And then in verse 35, it says, then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. He's reading from the book of Isaiah. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah and the eunuch doesn't understand what he's talking about. And what Philip does is what all of us should be able to do is take whatever people are doing and ultimately lead them to talk about Jesus. Because here's what's true about the book of Isaiah and here's what's true about all the books of the Bible. Every single book of the Bible is about Jesus. The entire Old Testament is pointing forward to this Messiah, this King, this rescuer, this savior who Jesus fulfills. 
And the entire New Testament points back to Jesus and what he has accomplished and points forward to him as the coming and returning king to make all things right. The entire Bible is about Jesus. And because everything God is saying through his word is ultimately about Jesus, here's the final sentence for today, that we believe it's all about Jesus. And listen, when we look forward to the future, we see a church that is filled with disciples who are committed to making much of Jesus committed to Jesus being the ultimate thing above all else in this church. Now, for some of you, that is a beautiful refreshment. Maybe you came out of a church that was focused on other things or going other directions, and that's a beautiful phrase. But for some of you, um, it's all about Jesus sounds kind of like, duh. Like, who else would it be all about? Captain Crunch, right? Like, what are we talking about here? And yet, here's what I want us to remember. I want us to remember that making it all about Jesus is never a given in a church. It's never a given throughout church history. I want us to remember that the great challenge in every generation of the church is to keep the main thing the main thing. That is the great challenge in every generation of the church. Like if you've ever studied church history, what you'll quickly see is that the church is filled with beautiful moments in its history. And I'm not talking about our church specifically. I'm talking about the global church in 2,000 years. There are beautiful and wonderful moments in the history of the church. But I also want you to know that there are horrific, embarrassing, sinful, wicked moments in the history of the church. And all of those embarrassing and sinful, wicked moments happen because the church stopped making the main thing the main thing. The church started seeking after political power or economic might. The church started seeking after something it wanted or something it wanted to control. The church stopped talking about Jesus, the resurrected one who is our savior and our hope, and started going after something else. And I want you to know that every time the church stops making the main thing the main thing, it never lasts long. It always has a run, it always has a season, it always has a time that gets people excited about something other than Jesus. But any church or any movement that is not focused on Jesus over the long haul will eventually fizzle out because the main thing is the main thing. And the main thing for us, Calvary, is to keep the conversation all about Jesus, always about Jesus. That's what we do here. That's what we see here as a church. And that's what we're gonna be invited into over the next decade, to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, I, I wanna give some specifics of what this means and doesn't mean. Because if we're gonna keep the main thing Jesus, if it's all about Jesus, then a few other things are gonna be true. Let me start with this one. If the church is all about Jesus, then it's not all about the way we've always done it. But like, here's what can happen for church folks. We come in, we meet Jesus, either as a child or as an adult, and it changes our life and we're fired up for Jesus. And then what we would like to happen is we would like the church to stay frozen in the moment we met Jesus and never change anything at all. If you're like me at all as a church folk, and I've been in church my entire life, I love when things stay the same. I don't want us to tinker with things. I don't want things to move around. I want things to stay exactly the same. But I want you to know that the main thing here at Calvary is not to keep things exactly the same. It is to reach people for Jesus and teach them to live and love like him. And anything we need to do or change in order to do that, we will. That's the whole history of our church. Uh, Calvary Community Church was launched on, in a restaurant. Churches didn't meet in restaurants in the 1970s. Then we moved into a warehouse in the 80s. Churches didn't meet in warehouses. But we decided to do what we had to do in order to make the main thing, making much of Jesus. And, and listen, I have no changes to announce. This isn't a setup for some big shift we're making. I just want us to know as we go forward, we will do anything it takes to reach people for Jesus because it's all about him. Number two, if this church is all about Jesus and there may be things around here that I don't prefer. Let me tell you this. 
I'm the teaching pastor here at Calvary. I've been on staff for a number of years. I have the influence to change a lot of things here. And there are still things that happen here at this church. And I go, I don't like that. There are still songs we sing. I'm like, not my favorite. There are still programs that happen here. I'm like, I don't even know what happens in that room, right? There are still things we do around here. I'm like, I don't like that poster at all, right? There are still things that happen around here. And my impulse is I got to change it. But then from time to time, God just reminds me that the name on the door outside the church is Calvary Community Church, not Brian Howard Incorporated. And I want you to know that the name on the door of our church is Calvary Community Church, not fill in your name, Incorporated. So the goal is not that this church would look like everything you want it to look like, that we would sing only the songs you like and only do the graphics you appreciate and only do the programs and only meet on the specific nights that you would prefer for us to meet. I want you to know that if it's all about Jesus, we need to be willing to lay down our preferences. Now, if it's doctrinal or moral or theological, if you believe that we're violating the scriptures, that's a different deal. But if it just becomes, hey, this is something I don't prefer, we should all be willing to lay down things we prefer for the sake of setting our eyes on Jesus. Because the only other alternative is you go to a church that is entirely aligned with every small preference and belief and idea and, and thing you like. And what will ultimately happen is that church will shrink to the size of your household and eventually your wife might not even attend, okay? <laughs> the alternative is this, that we step into a church that's all about Jesus and not all about my preferences. Number three is this, if, it's all, if this church is all about Jesus, then it's not about my comfort and enjoyment. You know, one of the things that happens every Sunday morning, uh, I'll stand in the lobby or be in different places or even out front and people will be coming in. I just love it. And when I see you all come in, I know all of us don't even know each other. I just see you come in. I'm just like, this is God's people and we're gathering to worship our God. And I'm so thrilled. And so sometimes as people are walking in, I'll say something like, hey, enjoy the service this morning. And I mean that. Like, I hope it's a wonderful blessing. And yet from time to time, the Lord whispers to me, like, what if I didn't actually bring them here to enjoy the service this morning? Like, what if the goal wasn't just their enjoyment? What if I want to convict them of sin? What if I want to show them some disobedience or some stubbornness or some ways I want them to change and move? See, listen, I want it to be comfortable in here and that I don't want it to be 100 degrees or 2 degrees in here. I'd like your chair not to be broken. And if it is, please let us know so that we don't have unnecessary distractions. I just want us to know the purpose of church is to set our eyes on Jesus, not just to be comfortable and enjoy it. And if we ever end up attending church in such a way that everything is said we already agree with and everything that's said we're already on board with and it never challenges us and it never convicts us and it never pricks us in the spirit, there's something wrong. If the church is all about Jesus, it's not about my comfort and enjoyment. Next one, if the church is all about Jesus, then my politics always come second. They always come second. If it's all about Jesus, then my politics come second. And listen, we've said this over and over. We want you to vote. We want you to vote your values and vote what you believe God would have for our society. We want you to do all of that. I filled out my ballot this week. I'm so for us voting this November and think we all should. Uh, if you wanna campaign, if you wanna put signs out, all of those things are good, healthy, right things if done in a God-honoring way. And yet the great tragedy for millions of Christians in this nation is that they have subjugated Jesus to their political party. And I want you to know that the Jesus I know will be subjugated to no one or nothing. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He rules and he reigns and everything will be put under his feet. That's the Jesus we believe in. So by all means, vote. By all means, advocate. By all means, do that. But politics will never come first if it's all about Jesus. At best, it will come second and likely third or fourth behind family, behind our church, behind our neighborhoods, our communities, and the love we have for people. 
May it always be about Jesus. May my politics always come second. Next one is this. If this church is all about Jesus, then I'm going to have to read the Gospels. <laughs> this one may seem out of left field, but here's what I'm convinced of. Uh, if we're about living and loving like Jesus, but you're not quite sure how Jesus lived and loved, you'll never know what the target is. <laughs> like I've said, you can't hit a target if you don't know where the target is, if you don't know what Jesus was like. If you don't know about his life, if you've never read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and understood the narratives and the stories about Jesus, you'll never be able to love like him. Maybe this is just a call for some of us this morning to pick up the gospels. Maybe it's been years since you've read through one of them. Maybe you would just make a goal, hey, between now and the end of 2022, I'm gonna read through John, I'm gonna read through Matthew, I'm gonna read through Luke or Mark. We need to know the gospels. We need to know the story of Jesus. And finally, if this church is all about Jesus, then listen, it's not about me. It's just not about me. And listen, the most miserable people you and I know are the people who make everything about them all the time. Don't you notice that? The people whose worlds revolve around them and everything's about them and everything's an offense to them or, or a compliment to them and everything builds around them. Those people are miserable. And the happiest and most joyful people you know, the freest and most peaceful people you know are the people who don't obsess about themselves all the time who don't wake up in the morning thinking about themselves and walking into every room thinking about how they look like and walking into every situation thinking about how it impacts them. If it's all about Jesus, then this is the great freeing call of Jesus. It's not about you. Here's how Jesus himself put it in Mark 8. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple, like you wanna be a disciple who lives in love like Jesus, here's what you need to do. They must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their, sake, loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus invites us to live a life where it's all about him and it's not about us. It's not about our preferences. It's not about our comfort. He invites us to a different kind of thing because it's all about Jesus. Here's how the story closes in verse 36. It says, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Then he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. So here's how the story concludes. Philip leads this Ethiopian eunuch to Jesus. He tells him about Jesus and Philip doesn't save him. The Holy Spirit saves him. Our job is to tell the Holy Spirit's job is to save. The Holy Spirit saves. And then immediately after being saved, what does this eunuch do? He points to the water and says, I need to be baptized now. I listen to God. And now I need to do what he says. We get saved and then we get baptized. And the invitation here at our church for any of you who have not been baptized, but you have trusted in Jesus is to be baptized, to walk in obedience to the call of God on your life, to say, I'm going to do this even if I don't understand, even if it's kind of uncomfortable, even if it's not where I'd like to go particularly. And here's the great thing. Two weeks from now, we have an opportunity, November 5th and 6th to be baptized. And all you need to do, if you've come to faith in Jesus, scan that QR code on your seat arm and you go ahead and fill out that baptism form. And that baptism form will tell us that you're ready to go public with Jesus, to show publicly as you go into the water that you are dead to sin and to show that you are alive in God and Christ as you come up out of the water. I wanna invite you to be baptized on November 5th and 6th as an act of obedience. Again, spiritual growth happens this way. We listen to God and we do what he says. But before we even get to baptism, we have to back up a step. And the step before baptism is coming to understand the good news of Jesus and respond to it. I want you to see the passage. We're gonna go back to verse 32 here. The passage that the scripture that the eunuch was reading, this is how Philip led him to Jesus. And this morning, I wanna invite some of you to respond to Jesus. 
This morning, I want to invite some of you to respond to the same message this Ethiopian eunuch responded to. And I'll just show you one sentence that said, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. Now, those of us who are Christians will know exactly what this is referring to, but if you're not a Christian or you're not sure what to do with Jesus or you're just checking it out, this might not be clear to you, so let me explain. When it says that he is led like a sheep to the slaughter, we believe this is a reference to the central picture, the central image of the Christian faith. And the central image of the Christian faith is a Roman cross that Jesus hung bloody and bruised and embarrassed and naked and ashamed on for the whole world to see. The centerpiece of the Christian faith is Jesus Christ bleeding and dying and suffering on a Roman cross. That's why we have a cross on our wall. That's why there's a cross outside that the entire freeway can see. That's why our church is called Calvary Community Church. Calvary is the hill that Jesus died on. It is the central image of the Christian faith. And if you're wondering why, here's our answer to that. Because we believe that on the cross, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. This is the central story of Christian faith and the central belief of the gospel that on the cross of Jesus, he paid a debt he did not owe. Why? For the sake of a debt we couldn't pay. What was the debt we couldn't pay? The scriptures tell us that every single human being looked at God and said, you created me, but forget you, God. I'm going in my own direction. We rebelled against and committed high treason against the God of the universe. And because of that, in every nation, in every kingdom that there has ever been, high treason has one penalty, and that penalty is death. That was the debt we owed because we rebelled against and sinned against the God of the universe. And on the cross, Jesus willingly, joyfully, lovingly pays that debt that he didn't owe. Why? Because we owed a debt we did not pay. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He paid that debt that we didn't owe. You know, debt has been um, in the news even this last week and uh, all the student debt controversy going on in the country right now of debt relief and paying off and all of that. And if you have strong opinions, I want you to know I'm, I'm not really interested in that this morning. I just want you to know that as that's happened, I actually went back into my files and found a document that got mailed to me a number of years ago. See, here's what happened. Um, when I finished undergrad, my parents had paid for all of my schooling. And then when I got to grad school seminary, they said, you're on your own. And so I wasn't making a lot of money. I was an intern here at the church, but I just stepped out and said, all right, God, we're just gonna see where this leads. And so I took out some loans and then over the years, just tried to diligently pay those loans back. And then years later, I ended up paying off that final loan. And I go to my mailbox one day and I open it up and this letter is in my mailbox. The paid in full notification. It says, please be advised that the loan listed below is considered paid in full. You know, there's certain documents you just throw away, but then there's certain ones you keep, right? You keep this one forever. Why? Because if someday the government or some loan company comes after me and says, you still owe money on your student loans, I will hold this document and say, no, thank you, sir. I do not. My loan is paid in full. It has been covered completely. And I want you to know that if you are a Christian, if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, this is the banner over your life. These words paid in full. Your sin has been paid for. Your debt has been covered. You are fully and finally forgiven in Christ Jesus. And my metaphor breaks down here because no one paid this off for me. I paid it off slowly. But the metaphor of scripture does not break down because when it comes to your sin, you paid nothing. Jesus paid everything. This is the gospel that his free grace is given to you and you are made a child of God. This is the good news of Jesus. This is the central message of the Christian faith. 
And so what do we do as believers? We hold on to this truth that our debt has been paid in full, past, present, and future. All of it, not just some of it, but all of it. And if you are here and you are not a Christian and you do not know the good news of what God has done for you, may I read these words as a proclamation and an invitation over your life. In Colossians 2, it says, He forgave all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. You were indebted to God. You were condemned by God. But because of Jesus willingly taking the price for your sin, you can be free. Your sins can be forgiven. You can be made a child of God. And you can have a home with him forevermore. And this morning, I want to invite you to receive that gift in the only way we ever receive the gift. We receive it with joy and we live with gratitude. That's how we receive the salvation of God. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't measure up. We don't try. We receive it with joy and we live the rest of our life with gratitude. So here's what I want to ask all over this room. Would you bow your heads right now with me? We're going to pray and close your eyes. And I'm asking you to do this all over this room because I want to give us a moment. If you're not someone who has put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you're not someone who has called on his name and received that forgiveness this morning, I wanna remind you that the scriptures tell us that there will come a day where everyone dies and they stand before God in judgment. And what will matter above that, all else on that day is what you did with Jesus and his offer of forgiveness. The person on your left and right cannot make this decision for you, only you can. And so this morning, I wanna offer you an opportunity to call on the name of the Lord. There's nothing special about the prayer I'm about to pray. There's nothing incantation or anything like that. It's just an opportunity to call out to God. And I want to lead you in that. So this morning, if you've never called on the name of the Lord, if you have never known Jesus, if your sins have not been forgiven, if you have never experienced that, I want to invite you to pray this in the quietness of your heart. Just pray, God, I believe you created me. And I believe that you're good. I confess that I have sinned and turned away from you. I confess that I have fallen short of your glory. God, this morning I repent. I turn from my sin and I throw myself on the mercy of Jesus. God, thank you for forgiving my sins. God, make me your child. God, give me a home with you forevermore. I give all I know of me to all I know of you. And if this morning you prayed that prayer all across this room, if today's the day you're putting your faith in Jesus Christ and receiving his forgiveness, can I invite you in this moment to just open your eyes and look straight at me? All over this room. I see you all over this room. Keep looking straight at me. If this is the morning, here's what I want you to know, that the Bible promises that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not that they might be saved or could be saved if they're good enough, but that they will be. And so I want you to know that this promise, that God forgave all of your sins, he canceled the debt against you, he stood against us, he's taken it away, he nailed it to the cross. This is true of you now. And the great thing we do as believers is we rejoice and celebrate and live in gratitude. And so again, if you're looking at me right now, I want you to know that God loves you. Jesus died for you. He invites you into relationship with you. And if today we can be of service in helping you know what that means, I would love for you to text Jesus to the number on the screen here. You can take a photo of it if you don't want to text right now. You can do whatever you want to do. We just want to invite you into something. We don't want anything from you right now. We just want to give you resources and someone to give you a call and help you figure this out all on your own. If today's the day. I invite you to come talk to us in the lobby. I invite you to text this number, reach out to a Christian friend that you would know that you are rescued and saved through Jesus. Your sin has been fully paid. For the rest of us, you can look right at me right now. Here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that spiritual growth happens when we listen to God and we do what he says. And for so many across this room, they just did that. They listened to what God had to say and then they responded by obedience and faith. 
And I want us to know that when it comes to being all about Jesus, when it comes to delighting in his word, when it comes to life change happening in relationship, our spiritual growth will happen when we listen to God and do what he says. And I invite you to do exactly that this morning. So let's take a moment to pray and then we'll close in a song of worship. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for once again showing up in power. God, I know that you have rescued and saved in this place. And I ask that you would show yourself to be faithful to those who have called on your name that you would apply the finished work of Jesus to their hearts and lives, that they would be resurrected with you on that last day. God, for all of us, give us the faith to listen to what you have to say, to put it into action. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.